the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, life questions, anything that's on your heart. You need only to provide the phone call, 210-340-9585 is our main number. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by mailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. Uh, If you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, it's Tuesday. Nothing's going on. By the way, I got wonderful reports on the Sweet Summer Devotion last night, so you might want to go to calvaryessay.com and listen to Paula's message. Um, Next week, Amber Hargrave is going to be doing uh, Sharing Her Heart. And we're looking forward to that as well. Okay, let's go to Hiram on line one from San Antonio. Thank you for calling early. You're on the air. Yes, I have a question regarding something I've been reading about about called biblical meditation. What is your take on what it is? How can it help us apply the word? And do you have some suggestions for passages or books that would be very helpful for a beginner in biblical meditation? Yeah, uh, Hiram, I, I, I don't know uh, a lot about the New Agey type of biblical meditation ideas. Now, meditating in and of itself, there's nothing wrong with that. It's not a bad word. We're told to meditate on the word. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we're supposed to combine sort of Eastern ideas with the meditation. So meditating on the word is nothing more than studying it deeply really considering what it says, what it means, and then how we apply it in our lives. But um, if I get the connection to your question correctly, uh, you've probably been given a direction, something that's maybe not quite so healthy. And I don't know, um, uh, without checking in, without doing some research, a lot about that. What I do know is this. Um, If you study the Word, if you do what it says... Uh, if you walk with Jesus, if the power of the Holy Spirit rests on you, then you're going to get questions answered, you're going to get prayers answered, you're going to have direction for your lives. Um, if there's any other element in the in the meditation that you're speaking of, then I wouldn't at all uh, suggest even digging into it. Um, you know, we, we and this isn't your question, I understand it, but um, I get questions on the show about yoga, and meditation, there's nothing wrong with yoga. It's just really good stretching. It's a great exercise. It's what you're thinking about when you're meditating. And so if if you apply that principle to our Bibles, then you're not meditating to find some deep, hidden, or secret meaning 
meaning in the text. You're just really considering what the Word of God says, what it means, and then how you can apply it in your life. And I'm sorry I can't go deeper, but Harm, if you'd like to give me a little bit of direction where you heard the comparisons, I could give you a little bit more um, in terms of uh, practical information for it. Thank you for calling. I look forward to hearing from you if there's anything else uh, that you want to add to that. Here is a question from... Let me get it out here. Um, Pastor Ron, this is from Fred. He says, why are so many? Why are there so many denominations uh, in Christianity? Um, Fred, there's denominations. Depending on your culture, depending on the time you live, there were, there were, there always have been different expressions of Christianity. Now, the thing that we've got to remember about this is that we as Christians are all bound together in the essentials of our faith. Um, the essentials, the virgin birth of Christ, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus, the fact that Jesus uh, is 100% man and 100% God, that that our God is one God uh, present in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, uh, the fact that Jesus died um, and rose from the dead um, for the remission of our sins and for the assurance of our salvation. And then, of course, um, that uh, that he's coming back. Those are essentials. The differences in denominations are usually centered around uh, non-essentials of our faith. And in non-essentials, we're to give people liberty. Now, all of that to say that depending on when you were born and where you were born, um, expressions of Christianity would be different. I'll give you a, a modern-day example. Uh, in the Philippines, the, the the primary expression of Christianity is Catholic. Um, in the Philippines, people like Manny Pacquiao, uh, who was born again, uh, loves Jesus, talks about him wherever he goes, um, he he remains a Catholic. But he is a born-again believer. That's a remnant that God has within the church. But in the Philippines, that's the primary expression of Christianity. Uh, in Mexico, it's, it's very similar to that. But the difference is that in Mexico, the expression of their Christianity is very mystical and superstitious and not founded on the same solid doctrine that, say, Manny Pacquiao's would. So we could say, one, well, they're born-again Christians. The other, maybe they're not. Now, again, God knows. So this is just for discussion purposes. Uh, in our country, uh, we have different views on communion. I just taught on communion this past Sunday, and there are different views in communions. If you go to Lutheran church, then you believe in, in transubstantiation, that the, the elements, the cracker and the cup, be, actually become the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's true to different degrees in other denominations as well. So the differences aren't that important because they don't deal with major things. But there are different expressions of Christianity. So I think it's really important to understand. Uh, this person also wants to know uh, what denomination are we here at Calvary Chapel? And the answer is that we're not a denomination. We are not connected financially to any other group. Uh, we don't support a an office that that's sort of a central office. Uh, we don't uh, give money for uh, anything. We have um, autonomy to be able to um, run our church our way. We are affiliated with a bunch of churches, but we're a non-denominational church, which means that we're independent of those denominations. So I think the differences uh, in terms of expressions of Christianity have always been there, and they will always continue to be there. Uh, John Wesley, um, he founded what is today the Methodist Church. Now, if John Wesley were here today and saw what the Methodist Church has become, uh, he would, um, figuratively speaking, roll over in his grave. Um, but but it's just that these denominations, a lot of them in, in, in the West, uh, have lost their focus. They've lost their bearing. They've virtually thrown away the Word of God. Yet in each of those churches, in each of those churches, Fred, there are real believers, um, just not as many because the denominations have often embraced the ways of the world. So it, it's just, I think, a, a function of of when you lived, where you lived, how you were raised, um, 
and it's evolving. I think now probably the expression of Christianity in our country is more non-denominational than denominational in sheer numbers, and yet still in some of the non-denominational churches, there's all kinds of craziness and stuff going on. So I hope that helps a little bit. But, uh, it, you know, the, the Bible is perfect. It is inspired, but we who interpret it are not. And because we're not, uh, we have different opinions on things. Are the gifts of the Spirit for today? I'm going to be teaching on the gifts of the Spirit starting this coming Sunday. Uh, and I'm going to be teaching it for, for several weeks, many weeks in the in the process. Um, but, but there are churches that believe, denominations who believe that the gifts of the Spirit have ceased. Others, like us, believe that the gifts of the Spirit are operational today and, and, and are to be utilized. There are others who believe that the gifts of the, they believe the gifts of the Spirit are for today, um, but at the same time they they exercise those gifts in a in a completely unbiblical, out of order way. So there's differences. There have always been differences. Thank you for the question. Here is an anonymous question: Is the Protestant Bible the true Bible, or is the Catholic Bible the Bible? Um, the sixty six books of the Bible. Uh, if you've got a Catholic Bible, you have 66 books that are uh, inspired by God. Those books say the same things that, that books that don't have the Apocrypha have. The problem with the Catholic Church is that they've included in their tradition and given them the same uh, authority as the canon of Scripture. The problem is that they have all kinds of inconsistencies. So um, the Catholic Bible uh, contains additional books which are not Bible. By that I mean they're written by men, not written by God. Now, from a historical perspective, there is some value in those books. But we have to remember that a book that's not written by the inspiration of God, literally the finger of God pushing the pens of men, is not Bible at all. And the reason the Catholics have those books, not even the Jewish, and, and these are, are, are books that would we, we would consider in the Old Testament section, um, but, but Jews never considered uh, any of those apocryphal books as a part of Scripture, as, as a part of their, their, their inspired word. And uh, the Catholics keep them in there because they support a lot of the Catholic traditions that are unbiblical, and uh, so I can tell you the Catholic Bible is not Bible in, in its entirety. Um, but, but the Bibles that have 66 books written by 40 different authors over a period of about 1,500 years, um, that's all the same. And it's inspired Word of God. What isn't inspired, as I mentioned a moment ago, is the way those books are interpreted. Thank you very, very much for the question. Um, here's somebody got a lot of Bible questions today. Uh, Joseph says, why are there books that have been banned from the Bible? Um, Joseph, there aren't any books that have been banned from the Bible. Um, I assume that you're talking about liberal scholars who uh, give the same level of credibility to books like the Gospel according to Thomas or the Gospel according to Mary Magdalene or Barnabas, um, those kinds of books, and, and, and say, well, why don't we have those books in our Bible because they're as important as the other books? Um, well, they're not. First of all, the books that are attributed, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene and Thomas and Barnabas as examples, weren't even written by those people. They were written uh, maybe by people who talked to them or who had their own ideas about what their ministries would have looked like. Um, but remember, there's this, the biggest difference is those are books that were not written by God. They were books that were written by people, by humans. And they contain inconsistencies. They contain errors. There are uh, large, large portions of those gospel accounts that uh, contain information that contradicts what we know to be true in in our gospel accounts, the synoptic, synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as well as the Gospel of John, which was more independent and written much later. So no books have been banned from the Bible. Again, I want to emphasize this. There are 66 books in our Bible. 66. And if we understand that, 
then we understand this by anything else that's been added is not by God. They don't belong in the canon of Scripture. So I hope that hope or I hope that helps. Bible or the phone's been quiet this week. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here is a question from Marty. He says or she says I don't could be a she. Uh, how should the Bible be viewed? Should it be taken literally, or are some events just stories? Um, Marty, the Bible needs to be taken literally whenever possible. Um, let me go back to the first question. Generally speaking, how should it be viewed? It has to be viewed as the Word of God. And I've been on a soapbox on this program now for nine years about this. It is the duty, the responsibility of every Christian to decide for themselves, doing honest scholarship, if what we call the Bible is literally the Word of God or if it's just a book written by men. If it's a book written by men, then we view it that way. But if it's really the the Word of God, then we have to view the Bible as without error, without contradiction. That's fairly simple. Um, But we also have to view the Bible as internally consistent. It's it's a book that tells the future um, from the perspective of the authors. And in, in many cases, like in the, the book of Daniel, it tells the the uh, uh, from the, the, the 6th century B.C., it tells the history of the world up until the time that we live and beyond. There are things in Daniel that have not yet been fulfilled because they're still future from our perspective. So we have to view the Bible if, as Christians— we have to view the Bible as his holy word. Now, when I said we have to take on that responsibility, it's the only honest way that we can come to these decisions. We've got to find out for ourselves. I can tell you it's God's word, but if you don't dig in for yourself, well, then you're not going to understand that. So the Bible needs to be viewed as his word. Um with regards to taking everything literally or taking things as metaphor or figurative, um, we view the Bible literally whenever we can. Um, when, when we uh, see something that tells us that God did this, you do this, that's literal. We're to, we're to be obedient. Uh, there are some things that are clearly poetic. There's poetic books of our Bible. Uh, the book of Job, uh, Psalms and Proverbs and Song of Solomon and Ecclesiastes, those are poetic books, and, and you don't make doctrine from those. And there is a lot of figurative or metaphor uh, in, in, uh, in the poetic books. Uh, for example, David writes, the trees of the field will clap their hands. Well, we know that trees don't have hands, so they can't clap their hands. That is obviously a metaphor for the whole creation will praise the Lord. So those we can take um, figuratively, and I think every time the Bible does that, it's really clear. When the Bible says that uh, people who live like this, and there's a whole list of sins in Galatians 5 and 1 Corinthians 6, will not inherit the kingdom of God, we can take that literally to say that if you live like this, if that's your lifestyle, then you don't know Jesus and you're going to spend eternity in hell. So we can take that literally. Um, there are plenty of pictures in Scripture, um, uh, but but it's easy to determine the difference between what we should take literally and what we should take figuratively. Um, now, as to whether some events are just stories, this is really sort of the most damaging um, understandings or misunderstandings of the Bible uh, that the Bible contains. Um, uh, Genesis, uh, in the beginning God. You have to believe those four words. You have to believe those four words. Um, if, If you take Genesis as just stories or allegories, well, then you lose all of the meaning, and in the process you lose a lot of this doctrine of, of our faith. It means you have to believe Adam and Eve were the first two people. If you, if you don't believe Adam and Eve were the first two humans created directly by the finger of God, 
um, then you don't believe Jesus. If you don't believe Jesus, then you don't have salvation. If Genesis isn't where the fall of mankind occurred, then there's no reason for Jesus to come and die for the sins of the world. So these aren't stories, and what we need to understand is that the choices we make in these areas will color everything that we take, everything that we everything that we understand our Bibles to be. So very important. Thank you for the question. Here is a question. Um, this is anonymous. What are biblical reasons for divorce? Um, the first biblical reason for divorce is hardness of heart. That explains divorce. It doesn't justify divorce. When uh, Moses granted certificates of divorce, we know this from Jesus' message in Matthew chapter 19. He says, because of hardness of heart. So that is why Christians get divorced, but it doesn't justify divorces. The biblical reasons for divorce are adultery, the breaking of the marriage covenant, abandonment is another, and and the other, of course, is is uh, physical abuse. Uh, God God called us to live in peace. Um, I say this every time I get asked this question: If you ladies are in a home where you're being physically abused by your husband, you need to leave, and you need to leave now. You need to leave and you need to leave now. That doesn't mean that God won't save your husband and, and a miracle will happen. But apart from that, he's going to keep beating you and you are in danger. The same thing is true uh, with adultery. If if somebody cheats in a marriage, then the person who is the victim of the cheating, they are free to divorce. Now, they don't have to divorce. They can try to work it out. Reconciliation is always God's first choice. But if they... Uh, do not, uh, if there isn't going to be any reconciliation, then then because of adultery, then you're free to divorce. The marriage covenant has been broken. You are the victim. You are entitled to remarry. And again, the same thing is true with abandonment. So I hope that makes sense to you. Thank you for the questions. We're inside five minutes, so let's get to a question while we wait for phone calls. Here is... A question from Milton. Isaiah 53 says, By his stripes we're healed. Does that mean that we're physically healed of diseases? Uh, Milton, Isaiah 53 has nothing whatsoever to do with physical healing. Now, before I explain any more, let me say that there are still times God heals. It is the exception rather than the rule. But Isaiah 53 and the atonement makes no mention whatsoever of physical healing. The context is interpreted uh, in the New Testament is the, the issue of sin. We are healed from that which kills us eternally. We're healed from that which separates us from God in fellowship. Um, his stripes, he was punished so that we wouldn't have to be. By his stripes, our punishment for our sins has been affected. But there is no promise at all, Milton, and I know this is a tough one because this is so often misunderstood, especially in um, health and wealth churches or prosperity churches or faith churches, uh, however you like to characterize them. Um, you know, they'll just scream and yell that that uh, uh, this is a promise that if you just have enough faith, God has to heal you, and that's not true. The Apostle Paul did not get healed three times, and I think there's nothing wrong with his faith. Three times the Apostle Paul begged Jesus for forgiveness, or, or for healing, rather, with the thorn in the flesh in Second Corinthians 12. And the Lord's answer to him was, my grace is sufficient for you. There are other examples, Epaphras in the New Testament, among others, people that were sick. We know that millions of Christians died from sickness and from persecution and other forms. Uh, we're, we're not exempt from any of that. So there's no 
promise at all regarding physical healing. This is healing from the one disease that's going to kill us all. Let me say, Milton, that that if you're in church, if you're asking this question because you have a church that is promising that, not only does the Bible demonstrate that physical healing is not guaranteed or even hinted at in the in the atonement, but common sense teaches you that. Look at the man who's telling you that. As he ages, he's not getting healed. He's not getting younger, stronger. It doesn't matter how much faith he claims to have. Outwardly, Paul says, we are wasting away. Inwardly, we're being renewed day by day, becoming more like Jesus. But but you're in a if if that's the case and you're hearing this in a church, it is not a healthy nor balanced church. The truth is disease and sickness happens to everybody, believer and unbeliever alike. And most of the time people don't get healed, at least not miraculously. So I hope that answers your question. Hey, the phones have been quiet. We have 30 minutes left in the program, 340-9585 or 877-630-KSLR. This is the word to stand up for life. We'll be back in two minutes. back to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the program 340-9585 for your live calls and questions i'm struggling today a little bit please forgive me i can't see today so it would be better if you would call me than me trying to read these questions today Here is a question from Anonymous. Uh, He or she says, New believer here. Why won't Jesus appear to me to prove he is real? Um, I have a lot of empathy for this question. I really do. Um, When I was a brand new believer, Anonymous, I was one of those guys, my life was in such a mess. I needed, I needed miracles and, 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 uh, you know, Jesus, I need to see you. And I would look for all kinds of signs in the clouds. I would, I would look for everything. And I asked this question, Jesus, just show me who you are. Um, and he showed me every day, not the way you want him to show you, but if you just trust him, if you walk with him, he'll show you every day just how real he is. Now, let me give you some evidence that ought to be sufficient for you. If you study the historical Jesus, there is no question that Jesus really lived, he really died, and he really rose from the dead. He didn't stay dead. Historically, the evidence is absolutely overwhelming. So we know he's real. What you've got to do is decide if you're going to believe that. You see, too often as Christians, you know, we're told that we're to walk by faith and not by sight. Well, too often, especially as a new believer, uh, we want to walk by sight and not by faith. It never works that way. The Christian says, or the human being says, show me and I'll believe. And God says, believe and I'll show you. And that's just the nature of our faith. So what you've got to do is you've got to decide who Jesus is. Now, again, there's so much historical evidence. I'm not talking about demonstrating blind faith. I'm not talking about just believing. I'm talking about really digging in to find out for yourself. And letting the Holy Spirit provide the answers for you. So I I think knowing Jesus really lived, that he really died, that he didn't stay dead, that proves that he's real. I think what you're looking for is you're looking for a Jesus who's sort of like a genie in a lamp. You want him to, to appear on command. Just believe. Just believe. Believe based on the evidence. And you indicate you're a new believer. So the issue of his realness ought already to be settled. 
The reason you're a new believer is because Jesus is real. Because the burden of sin that you once carried, he took away from you. Because in your life before Christ, you felt so alone, so desperate. And now you don't. That proves that he's real. Now here's what's really going on, Anonymous, in the spiritual realm. When you gave your heart to Jesus, you angered the enemy. We call him the devil. You angered him. He had you and he lost you. And now he's doing the best that he can to confuse you. He is powerful. Now, he's no match for Jesus. But make no mistake, you're no match for him. He's trying to make you doubt what you know. And this is just one of those times when you've got to be impervious to the lies of the enemy. Did God really say, how do you know the Bible is true? All those questions. Unless you are are willing to find out for yourself the answers to these questions, then you really don't want to know the answers. So let me just ask you to walk with Jesus. Tonight, talk to him. Open your Bible and talk to him. If you're a brand new believer, um, read the book of Ephesians. It's only six chapters. You can read it in less than an hour if you're if you're a less than average speed reader. Let God speak to you. Understand it's Jesus talking to you. Remember who he is every day. Be grateful for what he's done. And purpose in your heart to learn more about him every day. I often say this, um, but you know, when I first met Paula, uh, and I've told the story on this program where Paula has, but we fell in love with each other. I knocked on the door, she opened it, and we were gone. That was 51 years ago, and and we've, we've been together ever since. Um, but you know, as much as I loved her, and I, I couldn't think about anything or anyone else, uh, we were still strangers. Well, that's what happened with you and Jesus. He's a stranger to you still, though he forgave you, though he saved you. He's a stranger. And Jesus basically says, hey, let's talk. Let's get to know one another. And if we'll get to know one another, he'll show you over and over and over just how real he is. Let that begin today. And just purpose in your heart. Lord, I believe. I've made that choice. When the doubts come in, and they will, because the enemy is going to keep bringing them, when the doubts come in, say, nope, that issue's already settled. End of conversation. I'm going to talk to Jesus. And eventually the devil will get frustrated and try other approaches, other attacks. But this is something you've got to believe. I've got Cindy on line one from San Antonio. Cindy, thank you for calling. You gave me a break from not being able to see. Yeah, I guess I thought I'd rescue you. <laughs> <laughs> so I've been curious. I really wish I would have um, went to the church for uh, the book of Genesis more than I, you know, than I did stay home. But I'm really curious about the woman at the well, not, not about what transpired between her and Jesus, I already understand all that. But about the fact that she said that Jacob gave the Samaritans the well, and if they did, if the Jews didn't hang around with the, with the Samaritans, how come they wound up with the well? I, I was just curious about it, and I'd been thinking about it for, oh, about a week. It's been running around in my brain, mm-hmm. so I thought you you could put some light on it. I can do that, Cindy. To, Thank you. Go ahead. I went to... Um, breakfast and it was really wonderful what, what a beautiful group of ladies I really enjoyed it oh, Bye. thank you, thank you, bye bye we have a ladies prayer breakfast the first Monday of every month uh, at, at our house, Paula's house and, uh, and Cindy attended yesterday that's neat um, Cindy, the, 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 the reason that the Samaritans got the well you remember when the land was divided among the twelve brothers um the, the the land where the um, well is located actually um, physically is in uh, what, we, what we understand now is uh, was the northern 
uh, tribes, um, the, the, the ten nation northern tribes. So that's all that was there. And remember also that when the land was divided, there was no Samaritan uh, division. The, the division occurred, um, um, started under Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. Um, Solomon, the smartest man in the world, was a terrible dad, and his son was was a horrible king. And he and he put such a, a yoke of oppression upon uh, Jews that they divided from him into into to northern and southern tribes and. Um, the Samaritans were eventually conquered and the northern tribes were eventually conquered by the Assyrians and they um, they interbred with them and so Jews hated Samaritans, considered them half-breeds and Samaritans hated Jews. And so that's a lot of the conversation. Everybody was surprised that Jesus was talking to a woman, let alone a Samaritan woman. Even the disciples didn't want to touch Samaritan soil. But um, the well was just located in the area of ground. That, <clears throat> I'm sorry, in the area of ground that was given to um, the, the tribes there. So that was Jacob's well and that's the whole thing there. That, by the way, is a great interaction uh, in the Gospel of John and it just demonstrates um, just how silly it is to have prejudices. Um, Jesus loves people. We need to love people. It's that simple. Good question, Cindy. Thank you very, very much. Monty asks, what is the best way to grow my faith? Monty, there's only one way to grow your faith, and that's to, to walk by faith, to trust Jesus. Um, you know, you, your, your, your faith doesn't grow if you don't take risks. Uh, we have to step out in obedience to the Lord. And a lot of times the things the Lord asks us to do or the places he asks us to go are, 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 are scary places. They're scary things to do. And God says, I'm with you. And every time we say yes and let God move us, then we trust him a little bit more. Faith is like a, like having spiritual muscles. You know, if you go to the gym and you lift heavy objects, nobody likes doing that. But if you lift heavy objects, um, you, you, you build muscle mass. Well, the same thing is true with faith. When you take steps of faith, then you come out of it with a little more faith than the time before. And when you walk by faith, now remember, faith is a gift, but it's a gift that's available to everyone. So the best way, Monty, to grow your faith is when you're afraid, but you know God is directing you. Do it anyway, whatever he said. Don't think about the consequences. Don't don't try to figure out how God is going to do something or why he's going to do something. Don't have any expectations. The best way I can explain this to you is from my own experience. When we got to San Antonio, Monty, 26 years ago, uh, we had no idea how to start a church. None whatsoever. I remember I was called by a, by a guy who had a 10-minute radio show on KDRY um, every Saturday morning. And and he'd do five minutes of of really old style gospel music and five minutes of an interview. Well, he called me uh, be, because somebody else canceled and he was up the street. So I did the interview with him. And the first question he asked me was, so, Pastor Ron, how do you start a church? And I said, I don't know. You know, maybe come back and talk to me in three years or five years and I'll let you know. But I don't know how. I really didn't know how. And God, just day by day, step by step, gave me directions. First direction was teach Paul of the book of Romans. Now, I could have said, oh, I don't need to teach Paul the book of Romans. That's not what a pastor does. But I did every day. We went through the book of Romans till I was done. When I was done with that and we completed it, God said, okay, now it's time to start your Bible studies and we started letting people know that we were going to do a Bible study. It was May 31st, 1995. We had our very first Bible study. Thirteen people showed up. And for the next two years, Monty, it didn't look at all like God was going to start a church here. Every time a few people start coming, the Air Force would transfer people out. We'd be empty again. and I mean, it was just awful. Um, but we hung in there every day. 
And along the way, God asks us to take other steps of faith. And anytime we say no, we're diminishing the level of faith that we already had. When we say yes, even though we're afraid, then we learn that God is trustworthy. So if you're going to grow your faith, you've got to learn that God will always keep his promises. And the result will be greater faith. I can honestly say, Monty, now in terms of impact and magnitude, uh, and, and expense, I'll be honest, and expense, um, the steps of faith God has asked me to take in the last 10 years, 15 years, um, have been um, agonizingly difficult. Um, no resources, how are we going to do it? Uh, but, but, but compared to those very early steps of faith, which involved very little money and very little responsibility, the, the early steps of faith were by far the hardest ones. And the more you say yes to Jesus, the easier it gets to say yes the next time. And the more often you say yes to Jesus, the greater your faith is. And finally you get to the point, and I've been at this place now for quite some time, where I just can't imagine saying no to God, no matter how impossible what he's asking me to do seems to be. we got some things now that are on on the plate that, that God is asking us to do that... Um, I just don't see how we're going to do them. And yet, everything that God's asked us to do that was just as difficult or even more so, God was faithful. And so we've got to be faithful, and then we'll see his faithfulness and eventually get to the point where you don't even question him anymore. You just do what you're told to do. And that, Monty, is when your faith has grown. It's a good thing Jesus said we only need to start out with a mustard seed faith, a little tiny bit of faith. But when we respond to that, that seed grows. And it really is a joy, a privilege, and honor. But it's also the greatest adventure in the history of the world. The history of your life, when you're doing the really difficult thing, the thing that seems impossible, and you watch God do it. It's almost like here at the church, I'm watching a, a play and I'm in the play, but I'm also watching it from the best seat in the house. And all I have to do, my only role in the play is to say yes. And then I'm just watching what God does. And it's an amazing thing. It is a wonderful, adventurous life. So, Monty, trust him. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question um, anonymously. Um, pastor on how would you handle a pastor who's miserable in his marriage and about to leave his wife because he said God doesn't want him miserable but to pursue happiness? Um, anonymous, if that pastor worked for me, he would no longer be a pastor. It's that simple. Um, I mentioned this on the program yesterday, but we did, Paul and I, a marriage conference recently in Norman, Oklahoma. And uh, I told the people that if your marriage is not passionate, neither is your relationship with Jesus. And I've heard this pastor say, well, you know, my wife just doesn't get it. My wife is holding me back, those kind of things. No. That pastor's wife is a product of misrepresentation. Jesus has been misrepresented. She doesn't trust Jesus because she didn't trust her husband. So I would tell the pastor, if he was in on my staff, that he could no longer be a pastor. The understanding that God wants us to be happy is silly. It's sophomoreish. And the fact that this man would even consider breaking a covenant that he made with God simply because he was unhappy demonstrates that he really wasn't a pastor in the first place. I hope that makes sense to you. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We've got Bertha on line one from San Antonio. Bertha, thank you for calling. You're on the air. Yes, hi. Uh, I have a question. You know, my I was married to my husband 
we were married very young when I was 17 and uh, and we went through a rocky rocky marriage because mm-hmm. he was so young and there was a lot of abuse on his side to me mm-hmm. and I prayed for a sign and uh, I did find a sign across because I prayed whether I should leave this man or not because he was rather abusive. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, I, I, I went through a divorce because I wanted him to go through counseling. At that time, uh, he didn't want to go through counseling, so I uh, was trying to impress upon him that it was important. And so by getting the divorce, I thought that that would influence him. Apparently not. What he ended up doing, he ended up bringing a woman into my house. He married her, and he had two children by her. Mm-hmm. You know, the point is that uh, we were still living together as husband and wife. Uh, and, uh, well, we have to divorce, but we live together as husband and wife. And, uh, like I said, uh, he, he brought a woman into my house. Uh, I had left, he had left the house. And, uh, anyway, when I was gone, I, I went out of town. He brought a woman into my house. And then he said, what we would do is, uh, you know, he would wait for me. And, uh, I said, okay, I gave him the keys to the house and he stayed in my house, living in my house. He brought a woman there. Turned my house upside down. I came back from out of state telling him I wanted to get back with him. And he said, I'm sorry, it's too late. I've already married. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, you know, I really felt that he there was no closure to our marriage. You know, and, and I wondered, am I living in, in sin? really uh, I felt I should have been divorced after that and and he didn't do the divorce he didn't do the divorce he just went ahead and uh, continued with his marriage and he didn't want a divorce because now he had these two kids by this other woman and she would get upset she would be upset if we did that well after that you know he signed paperwork saying that uh, you know that that I would get some of his retirement or whatever, but uh, still he didn't give me my divorce. And so he left me in the air as far as I was concerned. And I had a child by another man and I wanted to make my daughter, you know, like they say, if you're not married to the man, then your your daughter, but this man didn't give me any other choice. So is my daughter, is she within the marriage or is she out of the marriage? Yeah, I don't understand Bertha, that. Yeah, Bertha, if you'd listen, we, we're running a little bit close on time, and I want to uh, do as much as I can. If you've got questions left, please call tomorrow at the top of the program, and I'll get some more. It's a very confusing story. Um, you, you know, you're entitled to get a no-fault divorce here in Texas. Um, uh, he, he certainly has qualified uh, you know, made you qualified for divorce biblically. Now, here's the problem that I have, Bertha. Um, it doesn't sound like either one of you are Christians. You know, a Christian doesn't sleep with one man and then go sleep with another man. A Christian doesn't uh, leave his wife and then bring another woman into the home. And, um, you know, the, the only answer for a marriage like this is is Jesus. And, and um, you can't wait for... Uh, him to get better, um, what you need to do is just understand that that this is not you're not you're not living in the will of God. Now your your daughter um, is is not a bastard child to use your word. She is a child of God and and uh, he loves her. But what your children need is a mom who's walking with Jesus, a mom who's following Jesus. And, you know, I, I get people all the time that tell me they're Christians, but then they're in these situations like you just described. I had a child by another man. You know, Christians don't behave like that. It's also important for you to understand that you don't have to pray about leaving a man who's physically abusing you. 
If he's physically abusing you, you need to get out and get out now. Well, you waited for a sign. You said God gave you a sign. You didn't need to wait for a sign. What you need, Bertha, is the love of Jesus Christ in your life and in your heart. So here's what I would suggest you do. I would suggest in the mess that you're in right now, you need to get away from that man completely. Take your daughter. And then you need to get saved. You need to come to Jesus and ask him to forgive you of your sins. Tell him. And this ought to be easy for him. There's no shame or condemnation in coming from me at all. But you need to say, Jesus, I've made a mess of my life. I've made a mess of my life. This isn't what you intended. Please forgive me of my sins. And I don't want to sin anymore. And then you give your heart to Jesus. And when you give your heart to Jesus, all of your sins are forgiven and forgotten. And then now, empowered by the Holy Spirit, empowered by a day-by-day relationship with Jesus, then all you need to do is walk with him every day and let him teach you how much he loves you. Let him teach you that he loves you, that he thinks about you night and day. That you're the pearl of great price, that he sold everything he had to buy you. And if you really believe that, Bertha, you will never, ever let a man treat you the way you've been treated by by this man and other men in your life, no doubt. So right now, this isn't about him. It's not about your marriage. This is about you and Jesus. He loves you, and he wants you. Bertha, I know in the short time we had, that's not much of an answer, but please, if you have any follow-up tomorrow, you can call at 4 o'clock. We'll put you right on at the top of the program. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh. I'll see you tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630. Lord willing, bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.